Thank you very much for having me here. Uh, my wife, Linda, sorry she couldn't join us uh, today. Uh, she's taking some teams out in the street to do prophetic evangelism back home, uh, but she sends her love, as does all the church. Uh, let me pray for you, and then we will dive right in. Father, we thank you for this time, Lord, that we can gather as your family, Lord. And Father, the, the song that we sang is we believe in you, Father, and we will not be afraid. We will not be afraid of the things that you're calling us into, the life that you're calling us to lead, and the challenges and the adventures that lie ahead of us. And so, Lord, we just ask that as we look at your word today, that your blessing would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you, are you excited? Yeah. Wasn't that just amazing, some of the things that you guys are involved in? I get really excited when I come to this church. Uh, I was here in June, and you've grown since uh, June uh, last year, which excites me. It excites me the vision that your leaders you know, actually have for the city. It excites me that the Lord's putting key people in key places that will continue to bring life to the city. And the biggest thing that excites me is that you guys actually believe that everyone spends their eternity somewhere. And it is your mission in life to actually bring people into the God-saved life. And as the stories start to unfold, this is only going to increase. And the exciting thing is, is you get to be a part of it. Because even as the growth has came in this last, what, seven, eight months, what's it going to be like in the next two and three years? As you guys continue to do what you're doing, the church is going to grow. The church is going to expand. But even more than that, Carlisle's going to grow. Carlisle's going to expand as you bring life to it. Uh, We're going to look today, the subject that they gave to me, and I don't know why I'm away up here because we shouldn't be anywhere there. (laughs) Sorry, we were. It's how to face your giants. That's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. I recently watched an interview with a guy, this guy here. Uh, Does anyone know him? Andrew White. He's the vicar of Baghdad, an absolutely amazing man, one of my uh, new favorite uh, heroes. He's faces giants every single day of his life. You know, he ministers in a region that is predominantly Muslim. Um, He's endured kidnappings, endured bombings. Life is constantly under threat from various fundamentalists, the the latest one being ISIS. But he also faces his own personal giant uh, because he's been stricken with multiple sclerosis. Uh, But they've actually found a way to treat his multiple sclerosis. We're still researching this in the United Kingdom But actually over in Baghdad, they found a way of actually recirculating his blood, giving him some chemotherapy and giving stem cells to it. And actually his condition is improving. So he reckons that you can actually reverse that. But when he leads his life, one of the things that constantly happens with him is a super international, you know, a supernatural kind of intervention of the Lord just to kind of change things around. So he's driving his car down the road one day, and all of a sudden, uh, the car just stops, it dies. 30 seconds later, there's a major explosion, at least about 150 yards away from him. After the explosion, the car starts springing back into life. If he had actually driven for those other 30 seconds, he would have been blown up completely. The other thing he says is the, the Ayatollah, do you know, of that area, actually phones him up. And he phoned him up one day and he said, have you guys get any, any food? And he's like, he said, no, all I've got is $30 in my pocket. You can have the $30. He says, what do you need? He says, we've got tens of thousands of refugees that have just actually descended upon us from Jordan and various places. We have no food. Could you ask your God to provide food for us? And he's like, okay. He says, so I need you to pray. So he prays and says, Father God, these people are suffering. They need food. Would you provide it? Amen. 
puts the phone down. Next morning, he wakes up, he gets a phone call from an, an American chap, and he says, I heard you guys feed the poor. And he said, yeah, we do. He said, would you like some food? He said, how much? He said, well, we've got tens of thousands of tons. Would you like it? And he said, yes, we would. So he phones the Ayatollah, and he says, I've got your food. I've got your meat. And he said, why do you sound so surprised? We know that when you pray to your God, he always provides. This is an Ayatollah who oversees thousands and thousands of Muslims that looks to the Christians because the Christian God actually delivers on his purposes. doesn't matter what the giant is, whether it's poverty or food shortages, God intervenes in his life, just as he wants to do in every one of our lives. You know, I pray that we would never face the giants that, that Andrew actually faces, but from time to time, especially as you're pushing in and advancing the kingdom of God, the enemy of your soul will send giants to challenge you. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, none of us are exempt from it. And as your church continues to rescue lives, he will send it, and you'll find it more, you know, happenstance coming to you. It might be a giant with a health issue. That might be the giant that you face. It could be a relational issue. It could be a financial giant. It might be stress. It might actually be your work situation. That could be your giant. But let me tell you how giants work in our lives. You see, the goal of the giant is basically to incapacitate you, to wear you down so that all your focus is is on the problem or or on yourself. You know, and what it seeks to do is to isolate you from people because it's the old adage, isn't it? Divide and conquer. You know, it's it's spiritual warfare 101. So what I thought would be good today is to look at how do we as Christians position ourselves, you know, whenever we're facing our giants. So the classic text on giants, if you've got a Bible, is 1 Samuel chapter 17. So if you've got a Bible or an iPad or your phone, if you could actually uh, turn to it. It's one of the most, you know, famous kind of battles, one of the most famous struggles or fights that you will actually find in the Bible. It's an interesting title, isn't it? Uh, David and the Dwarf. I thought we would uh, change it rather than David and the Giant. Because as we read through the text, what you will actually find is and realize that there was actually only one giant on the battlefield that day, and it wasn't the guy who was nine feet tall. So we're going to pick it up at 1 Samuel verse 17 at verse 1. And what I want to do is walk you through the scripture and bring out some principles that you can actually apply to your life that will help you whenever you're facing your giant. Is this coming through okay if I got it too low? Is that okay? Good. I'll put it up on the screen for you if you don't have your Bible. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkoth in Judah. They pitched their camp at Ephes Damon between Sukkoth and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and they drew up their battle plan battle line, sorry, to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So here we have this familiar setting. We're already informed from this brief kind of scripture that the Israelites are actually already on a back foot because the Philistines have basically invaded the land that God gave to the Israelites. And they've set up this camp in Judah, in their territory. And it's probably springtime because we know from the Bible that it teaches that And springtime was a time when kings actually went to war. The two armies are facing each other in opposite hills, separated by a valley. And it's a standoff because they're both waiting to see who's going to attack first. 
Because the one who attacks runs onto the plane and starts charging up the hill to attack the opposing army actually finds itself at a strategic disadvantage. It's so much harder to win a battle kind of uphill. But what the Israelites don't know is that the Philistines on this occasion have a secret weapon. They have a giant. And the giant is described as thus in verses 4 to 7. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet in his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. I want you to try and picture this guy. This guy's at least nine feet tall. He's slightly kind of taller, uh, which means he's at least three feet taller than me, you know, to, to begin with. And to accentuate his height, he's got this large bronze helmet, you know, on his head. Upon his body, he's got this kind of leather jer- jerkin, and it's got leaf armor sewn into it. So he looks the epitome of some reptilian creature. You know, this leaf armor kind of looks... He looks like a fearsome beast actually standing before you. And there he stands blocking out the sun. His armor alone weighs more than many of the ladies actually here today. So he's, he's a strong kind of guy. And on his back he's got this bronze javelin. And it's so big and it's so heavy that it would actually pierce any armor you know, known to man in that day. And he's probably never going to use this javelin. This is just a trophy piece actually. It's, it's his boasting to be quite honest. This is the kind of thing that you hand hang over a mantelpiece, so it is. Do you know, his spear is as thick as a weaver's rod. We've got a, a, a mill, an old mill, you know, in Lanark, and I went to visit and had a look at a weaver's rod. It's actually that size. So I couldn't get my hand, my two hands actually around it. So you can imagine the size of Goliath's hand. He's a huge, huge man. The tip of his spear, an imperial kind of measures, is 25 pounds made of iron. So when he brings this down, you know, on someone, he's bringing it from an extended height of about 15 feet, you know, with this 25-pound weight. That would just obliterate anyone that was standing in front of him. So to come up to him and to face him would have been totally and utterly terrifying. So how do you face giants that are totally and utterly terrifying? Well, here's the first thing. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you because you will face a giant. Here's the first thing to do. Stand up to them. You stand up to them. You face your fear. When, where do you, you know, take courage to face your fear? The only way you find it is finding it in something actually greater than your fear. It's taking your eyes basically off the problem, which is great, and it might be great for many of you, but you put them onto someone who's actually greater. So you put it into God's love for you, God's grace for you, God's strength for you, God's peace to you you know, that's greater than any problem that we will face in life. And we need to, you know, we need to realize that greatness when we're facing it. So, so for me, one of the first times I learned this was I worked as an engineer for Rolls-Royce. I was working on a, a turboprop project. Uh, we were behind in the project, so there were, I volunteered to do extra hours, constantly working on it to get this project. And it, it was worth, I think, about, I think it was about £10 million the project that I was working on at the time. And uh, as an engineer, I kept going and going. But what they were making me do was work Sundays. And as a Christian, you know, I like to keep my Sabbath. I like to go and actually worship. And so I said to my manager, I'm not going to do any more overtime. I've done more than anyone else. 
uh, you need to get another engineer in to kind of, you know, take some of the burden as well. And he said to me, well, if you take the Sunday off, I'm sacking you. I went, wow. I said, well, here's the deal. I said, I'm a Christian. I said, and to me it's really important that I get to worship my God on a Sunday. And if my God wants me to be out of here, you will be able to sack me. But if my God doesn't want to be me out of here, I'll still be here and you won't. And so three days later, I was still there. He wasn't as well. God had orchestrated it that he moved to another plant, another factory. I was able to keep my Sabbath. It would have been so easy in the intimidation of your manager, who's really a guy at five foot two with a nine footer inside him wanting to get out all the time. That's the way he, he dealt with people, to actually be cowed down and worried about that. Sometimes you've just got to face your fears, trusting that God will supernaturally intervene in your behalf. So what do the Israelites do? Well, immediately they become cowed, immediately they become dismayed, and they also become terrified. And that's the exact opposite thing that we actually need to do when facing a giant. We need to stand up to them. So here's the second thing. Second thing you do is you don't negotiate with them. Uh, In verse 8, what you find is Goliath tries to negotiate a challenge. So here we go. Goliath stood up and he shouted to the ranks of the Israelites, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man. And let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. From reading the text, we discover that giants, when you stand your ground, will often invite you into some kind of negotiated settlement where their presence can be somehow coped with. You know, in those days, what they realized that whenever the two armies fought, the carnage was so massive that it decimated the population. You know, if all the men start to die... You know, they couldn't go and, you know, uh, bring in the crops, etc. They couldn't do so. What they thought was, let's get two champions to fight and avoid the kind of carnage. So this is the situation we're into. The challenge has been set, but what is the challenge? Well, the challenge is this. Give me a man. Come on, give me a man. Isn't it interesting, you know, that the giants in our life often stand simply to intimidate us. The giants maybe in your community, your workplace, the ones that overshadow you from the past, they stand to intimidate you. But that's basically what they do. It's how they overshadow us. The key is don't negotiate with them. Stand up to them. You know, they won't like it if you stand up to them because it's going to cost them. They will offer you some way of remaining in your life, you know, some negotiated way so they can still influence you by you falling into line with their demands. So for me as a young Christian in the engineering firm, they would say things like, Jamie, we'll stop picking on you and stop slagging you if you keep quiet and look the other way. When we curse, when we swear, when we steal, when we say derogatory things about women, and when we sky from work. So trying to negotiate. And uh, we don't want to see you reading your Bible you know, anymore during the tea break because that just makes us feel uncomfortable. Okay, And in their terms... What they were wanting to do was to undermine me as a person, you know, and actually make me not to be who God has created me to actually be. And the way Goliath is operating here is very interesting. Do you notice that he does not call the army 
that he's actually facing the Israelites. I mean, everyone knew that they were the Israelites, but what he says here is he calls them the servants of Saul. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? What's he saying here? What he's saying is, I'm the tallest amongst the Philistines. Now, who's the tallest amongst the Israelites? Do you see what he's digging at? Because Saul was actually the tallest Israelite. You know, two, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2 tells us he was a head taller than any other kind of Israelite. And what he's basically saying is, give me a man, if you can find one. Just a man, maybe a tall man, maybe even the tallest man, you know, amongst you. If you can find such a man, bring him out to me. And if he can kill me, well, then we'll become your subjects. And it's quite clear and specific that intimidation is both general and quite specific because Saul himself is actually the target of the intimidation. And here's the negotiation with a twist. Because what he's in effect is saying is, you know, I'll let you guys off the hook you know, if you give me Saul, and by the way, when I kill him, I'll still be intimidating you because you'll become our servants. It moves on into verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephraim named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul into war. The firstborn was Elab, the second Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. David was the youngest and the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now at this point, David has been anointed you know, to be king by the prophet Samuel, uh, but he has to wait. And as he has to wait, he's got to be obedient to his father, but David is bursting to fight. He wants to be like his brothers. He can't go to war because he has to do what his father says, i.e. look after the sheep, and that's just a job and he's got to get on with it. And what we need to remember in this is that God has a plan for you. But you know the most frustrating thing, and the thing we struggle is, is God's timing. It's not always when we actually want it, but God's timing and God's plan works 100% of the time, all the time. In fact, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, people can make all kinds of plans, but it's only the Lord's plan that will actually happen. Do you know, um, we, we've been, been looking at, uh, we've been for, I think it's for six years, the Lord's been telling us to move building. And we've been looking and looking and looking, we can't find a building. And all of a sudden, the times came and we were just about to buy a new building. It would have been so frustrating you know, and so negative just to give up after year two, you know, looking for it. But God's planning and God's timing is always perfect. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 16, it goes on. It says, for 40 days the Philistines came forward every morning and evening and he took his stand. That's six weeks. Every morning and evening. Can you imagine it for six weeks? Maybe some of you have actually experienced it. Every morning and evening, the same presence intimidating you day in and day out. And it kind of wears you down because the one who stands behind the intimidation is actually maybe not the person in front of you. It's the enemy of your soul that's maybe motivating them to behave the way that they're behaving. Chip, chip, chipping away at you. And your first response might be to be dismayed, maybe even to be terrified. The next response is always sometimes to be actually frozen, more and more incapacitated by the presence of whatever your giant actually is. The fact was that the the Israelites... You know, we're getting used to this giant. And sometimes we can tolerate their presence. You know, he's become like almost part of the furniture. He's always on the landscape. Have you ever been in a church like that where, you know, you know there's a real kind of problem in the church and it's a bit like the elephant in the lounge? 
you know, and no one talks about the elephant. You know, we just kind of move around about it. Maybe, maybe we can put a wee doily or a placemat on it and hope that it, no one kind of notices. We cover it up. But nobody does anything. And, and I think it has to do something with the inability, the congenial inability of being British to confront. We don't kind of like it because, do you know, that would be thought to be rude. Wouldn't it be thought to be rude? I've got a friend who we do a bit of mentoring of. He took over a church in Aberdeen. church was about 175 strong. And uh, we were talking about some things, and now the church has grown to 750 strong. And one of the things we said to him said, why don't you ask the congregation why they're not bringing their friends when they were 175 strong? Guess what the number one reason was people weren't coming? Better audience participation. Why do you think people weren't asking their friends to come? What was the elephant in the room? Didn't want to embarrass them. That's, that is part of the, the thing. Why do you think they didn't want to embarrass them? No, the preacher was great. It wasn't the coffee. i tell you what it was. Flags. Flags. They didn't have little flags. They had massive flags. And when they were waving them, you know, we had four people that were very exuberant waving them. And often when they were taking the kids out, people were getting clubbed in the head. So it was a health and safety issue as well, you know, with it. That was the elephant that no one wanted to talk about, was the flags. The second elephant in the room, and so they get rid of flags. second elephant in the room was the, the guy who'd done the visuals. So he had been there since the beginning of the church. That was his ministry. No one would touch his ministry. But the problem was... The band would give him a set and they'd be doing that. And then on the Sunday morning, whenever they were actually rehearsing, if he didn't like the song, he would go, nope, <laughs> throw it away. So the band would like, what are we playing now? Well, whatever he wanted up in the screen. <laughs> I know you guys would never do that. But that was the elephant in the room that no one would address. See, when they addressed those two things, the church grew from 175 to 750 and growing within three years. Three years. Uh, So, again, sometimes these things need to be addressed. Here's the third thing. Okay, moving on quickly. Don't tolerate them. Okay, toleration is not a universal virtue of Christianity. Do you know, the scripture says, one thing I have against you, says the Lord. And he's speaking to the church in Thethorira in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. He says, this one thing that is going to remove your lampstand, says the Lord, is you tolerate. You tolerate. The one thing I have against you is tolerance. Now, now sure, tolerate their responsibility, youth. Sure, tolerate the failings and fallings of those around us because we're all in the same kind of boat. But don't tolerate the giant. You know, don't tolerate them. Kill them. But, I mean, don't kill people, okay? So, that's a disclaimer. I'm not talking about people here. I'm talking about the principalities and the powers, you know, that are actually operating here, influencing, dictating kind of culture. You know, those who pull the strings, you know, don't tolerate that. Face up to that. And, and please don't get caught up into the binding, saying kind of thing. That's wrong. It's unbiblical. And, and I can talk to you about that afterwards, you know. Work within the authority that God has given you. Do not step beyond his authority. Very quickly moving on. Verse 17. Am I okay for time? Now Jesse said to his son David, take the ephah of roast grain and the ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. 
they were, sorry, they are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out, and Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Do you ever wonder what the war cry was, you know, that day? I mean, they'd been there for 40 days, morning, you know, and evening. It's the first day, probably, that the, maybe the shout went like this. We're going to kill the Philistines. We're going to kill the Philistines. Into them. Into them. Oh, look at the size of him. <laughs> Can you imagine after 40 days watching out to that? What would the war cry be like? It may have been like, uh, what are you doing today? Uh, maybe we have to fight, I think it is. You know, well, uh, are you going? Oh, I, think, I think we've got to. Well, well you first. That's probably a long way for it. We're going to... It's probably moved completely, you know, from that as life and heart is draining out of them. Verse 23, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance, fee, five, fo-. no, wrong story. He shouted his usual defiance. David heard it and when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Suddenly David's standing there alone. He's got the cheese sandwiches and the cereal. You know, his dad sent him to, to give to his brothers. Everybody else is going to the fight. Do you know, he thought, and then they all bail, you know, out of him. Do you know, one of the things I would really stress to you as a small group, do you know, when you're going into the battle, you know, and then your friends run away from you and you're left alone, that's one of the reasons why you need to be in small groups. Because those are people that can gather around you so that when you're facing your giant, they will not leave you. They will not forsake you. They're there to support and help you. So I'd really want to encourage you, if you're not in a small group, to get in one. It's really the place where you're going to grow. Verse 25, moving very quickly. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. When I hear this, I think of that uh, Coronation Street Actress, what's the, the, the lady with the wee squeaky voice? Coronation Street. I all people watch. Okay, never mind that. <laughs> the king will give. Okay, do you know what, <laughs> how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father and family from taxes of Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what have we done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What reward for the man who kills the Philistine? Now, David's 17. Remember 17? Any of you remember back to 17? The idea of a supermodel misses, loads of money, and basically a pension plan for your dad. That sounds fantastic at the age of 17, doesn't it? He's thinking, wow, I could be set up for life here. I don't even know what the problem is. And then in verse 26, it says, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's going, guys, come on, he's got a foreskin. He's got a foreskin. Can you imagine the reaction of the people kind of hearing this, you know? It seems a kind of minor anatomical kind of point here, David, given the fact that he's over nine feet tall. What's a foreskin got to do with anything? Why is it in the Bible? What's he saying here? What David is saying here is simply that David was a man of the covenant. 
that he understood the covenant, that he recognized that the covenant said this, that God's commitment to God's people was to be present with them. That God's commitment to God's people was to provide for them. That God's commitment to his people was actually to protect them. This man did not bear the sign of the covenant. So therefore, there was only one giant in the battlefield that day, and it's not Goliath. It was a giant who stood behind the armies of Israel. who stood behind David. It's the same giant who actually dwells within each of you in the form of the Holy Spirit. And all giants compared to God are actually dwarfed by him. This man is nothing before the living God. Verse 27, and we're nearly finished. They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Elabs, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at them and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave these few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Confident, extroverted Christians don't go down very well with religious people. The older brother generally does not come out well in scriptures, does he? Have you noticed that? And I think the lesson to learn here is that if you're the younger brother, you've got to learn who to listen to. If you're the older brother, you need to learn maybe not what to say. And verse 29 in the scripture, I think is fantastic. I mean, this is recorded. This is a record of a teenager 3,000 years ago, okay? And this is what he says. Now what have I done? Says David, can't I even speak? Don't we just see the same things happening time and time again? I think it's fantastic. It's actually in the Bible. And then he turned away and brought up the same matter. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart and account this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And I love this because this is brash. This is a young, brash guy who's right, wasn't he? He was young, he was brash, and he was right. Back home I've got a church full of youngsters. He's young, they're brash, and sometimes they're right. (laughs) Not always right. In verse 33, Saul replied, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. He's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Well, obviously no problem then, David, keeping the father's sheep. Obviously that suits you perfectly for the battlefield, you know. I'm a shepherd boy. Okay, big man, what's the the difference here? But then he goes on to say, when the lion and the bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair and struck it and killed it. I mean, the lion and the bear, can you see them? Drop it, drop it. You'll get this stick, you know. And do you know the lion's going like that? Do you know, drop the lamb, he's saying. And then he says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised, there we go again, Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. That makes my faith rise. I think this 17-year-old's got fire in his belly. So he has. Do you know? And just reading about it just makes it rise. Here's the fourth thing, okay? What David is doing here is he's remembering his victories. When you face a giant, you need to remember when God's broken through in the past. You know, don't remember that you beat them single-handed. Remember that God, through you, actually gave you victory on it. It's one of the things we're learning about ministry. When we go into a situation and we're looking for our faith to increase, we remember what God done the last time. Why wouldn't he do it again? 
Why wouldn't he do it again? So that's the way we can increase faith. And let me finish by verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet, and he said, David fastened on the sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. What should you do when you're facing your giants? Wear your own armor. Even if it's just the gear of a a shepherd boy, wear your own armor. What does that mean? Well, it means Saul's dressed him in basically what belonged to him, and it didn't fit him. God has an anointing and a purpose and a plan for every one of your lives, which is different from each other. That's why we complement each other. There's times I've had when I've been talking about when we've been doing evangelism on the streets and we've seen God do things, and people come up to me and said, I wish I could take you into my workplace. Like, why? Because then you could tell all my friends about God and you could heal the sick. And I'm saying, no, you're in your workplace for that reason, not me. You've got to walk in the anointing and the armor that God has given you. And uh, another hairdressing story, Sue Larkin from Liverpool Vineyard. We were having that kind of conversation. I was saying, Sue, the Lord wants to heal through you. And that was the day that she had a similar conversation, but the lady had, I think it was, about 95% of her body was covered in psoriasis really, really badly. And Sue laid hands on her and prayed for her. And by the afternoon, her skin condition had cleaned up. An afternoon. That doesn't even naturally happen, you know, in, in any shape or form. So we've got to look at the anointing God has given. It's the same way as you've got to look at the anointing that's on this church. If you get a giant in this city that wants to keep hold of this city, you are God's ambassadors to take this city back for him. And there's a specific anointing that's on the leaders here and this congregation to do that. If you believe in that, if you get excited about that, if you apply these five principles when the giant of the city come against you and you stand up to them, you don't negotiate or give it any quarter, you don't tolerate you know, the fact that you have probably sex trafficking in your your city, the fact that your children will be exposed to drugs, the fact that crime will be around every kind of scheme in this area. When you stop and say, no, we're going to do this a, a different way, when you start to remember the victories and celebrate the stories and look at the breakthroughs in the schools, the education, you know, in the places of business, you know, whatever you're doing in the houses and recreating, when you start to do that, what can stop you? Because God wants to give you more as you're faithful in that. And when you start to walk in the anointing specifically that God has given you, no giant can stand. Because when you understand your identity, that you are sons and daughters of the God Most High, and with that you carry the same authority that said, come forth to Lazarus, and took something that was dead and brought it back into life, and you realize that authority releases power into your life, every place that you go changes. Every scenario, everywhere you go, has a potential of changing to be something glorious for God. Why? Because you're there. Christ wants. Ambassadors of him. And you carry that supernatural presence that birthed this whole creation into actually being. So we need to understand authority. And we need to understand practical ways to face your giant.